We're going to be in John chapter 1 tonight. And as you're turning there, let me say just a couple of things. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of extended prayer time at the end of the service. Um, that's why I cut it a little bit short there. And tonight we are also beginning a brand new series. And we're going to be looking at the first 18 verses of the book. And the reason why we're doing this is because this is a unit. Uh, it's a prologue. For those of you who are familiar with theater kind of terms or uh, other types of literature that use a prologue. And this is a little different than what I usually do when I open a series. A lot of times I'll, I'll give a lot of 30,000 foot view and then I'll do a couple of verses. Uh, but I want to do this one differently because of the way this text shakes out. And also, I trust that uh, most, if not all of you, have a good study Bible and you can procure some of that information on your own, so I am entrusting you to do that. But let me also say this as we ease into the text here. Uh, John is a great book for everyone. It is a great book for believers because it reminds us of who we believe in. He's not just the man of the year. He's not just some guy that they named a holiday after. Jesus is God, 100%. And John emphasizes that. You'll get to see that even uh, tonight. It's not that the other Gospels don't, but the way that John comes at that concept is entirely unique. So the second thing I would like to say is, if you have a thinking cap, you need to find it. Because John is not tough sledding, but it's going to require all of our faculties to wrap our heads around what it is that the Holy Spirit has inspired him to say. You'll definitely see that with our first point tonight. Third thing I want to say by way of introduction is if you were here and you were not yet a Christian, this is a great time for you to show up because this gospel, this biography of Jesus has been used for centuries now to help answer questions of countless unbelievers, to introduce them to Jesus and imagine the things that could happen in your life as you open your heart to what God would have to say to you through this book as well. So there's truly something for everyone here. Now, in regard to the passage itself, very specifically, let me give you a, a couple of things that I found about it. One person said it is the most sublime text in all of the New Testament. Some believe it is an early Christian hymn of the incarnate word. Because Jesus' incarnation is its subject and it is marvelously poetic in its description thereof. It also introduces us to some of the major themes of the book. The cosmic Christ, as we will refer to him in the first point tonight. This light came into the world, he suffered rejection, but still gave grace upon grace to those who received him. It gives us an insight into the power, into the glory and into the grace of God. So the way I want to pull all this material together tonight is around three organizational points, and the first one is this, what I simply want to call truths about the cosmic Christ. Let me read the first couple of verses for us. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. 
And so right there, even in those first two verses, we actually need some sub-points to go under our larger points. So let's work through them a phrase at a time. We'll start with the first one. In the beginning was the Word. And so the, the point there is that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. And if this gives you kind of Genesis vibes, then I think you're picking up on what John has to say there. When he says, in the beginning was the Word, he's clearly communicating that Jesus was there involved in creation. And here's where it gets interesting linguistically. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. The word was that is in the Greek is in the imperfect tense, which means he was continuing. One other commentator said it like this, he was wasing. And even though that doesn't make sense to us grammatically, you know exactly what that person is saying. In fact, this whole sense is carried within the first verse. In the beginning was continuing the Word, and the Word was continuing with God, and the Word was continually God. So Jesus was preexistent to everything and exists forever. Now, if you've done any study on this passage, you also know that the word logos, where we get the word word, has several meanings. There's many books that have been filled with information about this concept. I will not take us too deep into that rabbit hole tonight. But it is worth noting what John is trying to do here. Because what happens with this, the, the way it's ordinarily used, it means that it is a, a, a sense of not just the sound of a word, but the expression of personality in communication. For the Hebrews, the word of God was the self-assertion of the divine personality. To the Greek, the formula denoted the rational mind that ruled the universe. And what John is asserting is that the word is visible and antedates, as this one writer says, the totality of all the material world. So he's bringing together kind of Hebrew and Greek and also communicating something very fresh about Jesus. One other thing that's important to note here is that he is showing that Jesus, to quote ZZ Top here, is not just local, he's nationwide. And he's not just nationwide, he's earthwide and galaxy-wide. And all throughout anywhere, Jesus is Lord over all of it. And so for people who would have been hearing his teachings and they'd see what he'd done and so on and so forth... To know that this wasn't just some guy with miraculous power wandering around in the first century in the Palestinian area. But this is the Lord over all creation who has always been and will always be. Now we're starting to pick up on what John is indeed putting down. And if you find yourself going, this is kind of hard to wrap my head around. That means you're starting to get it. And that should be some of what we carry with us as we work through the rest of the passage. Let's look at the next phrase. And the word was with God. So the subpoint here is that Jesus is eternally in relationship with the other members of the Trinity. Literally, this word means the word was continually toward God. Another way to think about it, the Father and Son were continually face to face. And this preposition with bears with it an idea of nearness, along with a sense of movement toward God. It's to say that he has always existed with the deepest equality and intimacy within the Holy Trinity. And even though the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here, 
clearly he is implied to be in the mix. But that's not all. Because the word was God. And so the subpoint here is, Jesus is eternally God, yet he is distinct in his identity from the other members of the Trinity. And so if there's a mystery here in your mind, there is a mystery here in the minds of all the other Christians that have lived since Jesus walked the earth. We will never fully understand this. And one of the things that I remember, I thought this was kind of cruel, but also somewhat hilarious. In seminary, I was in a church history class, and the guy, I won't tell you who he was, but he was basically like, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to have everybody go around and kind of describe how you would describe the Trinity to people. And so all around this class, there's probably 150 of us in there, you know, the brave people start raising their hands. I, by the way, did not and was very happy. But they start giving their, oh, it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this. And about halfway through it, he goes, okay, I appreciate all that. Just so you know, almost everything that has been voiced has been decried as a heresy at one of the councils that has happened in historical theology terms. And, of course, it's a pin drop moment. And then he was like, well, but you get my point. The point is, this is hard to understand. So we do the best we can and still know that eventually the train track of our understanding runs out and we have to step back and go, God is entirely unique. He's one of a kind. One in essence, three in persons. There's never been another one like him. There never will be another one after him. So Jesus, part of the Trinity, but unique in his identity. And that's not all. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So the subpoint here is that Jesus is eternally creator. And this is right in line with what we learned over in Colossians, wasn't it? Remember chapter 1, verses 16 and 17? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the Bible tells the same story page after page. The eternal creator, Jesus, is involved. And I think when you take all this together, in addition to our proverbial head-scratching, we should have at least two other responses. The first one is that we would simply stand amazed in awe and wonder and worship. We should hear this and we should say, holy cow, look at Jesus. He's not just somebody's homeboy, as the movies tried to tell us a few years ago. He's not just somebody that we look to in times of trouble. He is who the Bible says he is. An eternal creator. Part of the Trinity. Distinct in his identity. Also someone that is eternal in nature. And this God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. And he's worthy of all of our lives. That's who Jesus is. On his terms. And the second response that we should have after that speechless awe and wonder and worship is an immense sense of gratitude. 
Because after being reminded just how high and glorious he is, the thought that he cares about every single tiny situation in our lives becomes all the more marvelous, doesn't it? All the more poignant of a picture of his care and compassion for us. That he cares for each one of us as if we were the only sheep in his fold. And yet, he is beyond all things. Friends, that should well up gratitude within our hearts. It should well up humility within our hearts to see who he is and see what he does for us. Now, that being said, let's turn our attention to our second point. And that is what we might want to call the light of Jesus that moves from verse 4 all the way down to verse 13. (laughs) Look at this. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, kind of like those first three verses, this is just filled with meaning. But let's understand it in the way that it is offered here. So you get some truths about Jesus in 4 and 5. And then you get this little excursus, little purposeful rabbit trail here in verses 6, and 7, and 8 where he speaks, John does, about, of course, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. This is a different John, by the way. And he is a forerunner, he's a prophet, he's a way preparer, and he points out the nature of his ministry is basically to do this. It's to herald, it's to point. One of my friends said this kind of jokingly, but the point is well made. He was Jesus' hype guy, and he pointed to Christ and all of his greatness and all of his glory. And it was interesting, one of the other commentators that I found on this basically said that John the Baptist was an agent of belief, but not the object of belief. And even though this is clearly not what John is intending for us here, I think that in many ways, shouldn't we serve in a similar capacity? Not the same capacity. He had a very unique preparatory ministry, but isn't that kind of our gig too? That we point to Jesus, we talk about how great he is, we talk about the light and all that he can do. But this nature of the light that we're talking about here, what's he getting at here? Well, there's plenty of scriptural evidence that talks about Jesus as light in a physical sense. And we see him appear in glory in various places, Matthew 17, Mark 9, John 17. But the emphasis here is on him bringing spiritual light to the dark world. And the way that all of humanity seems to benefit from this is through nature and conscience. What we might call common grace in some ways. That there is a way in which the light of Christ shines on everything. Now, does that mean everybody's going to be saved? Of course not. 
But there is a beneficence or a, a beneficial nature, if you think of it that way, of the light of Christ shining into the darkness in this regard. But I would also point out to you here, look at the rest of verse 5 and think about how, the significance, how significant this is in our day. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, we live in some dark times. Is it as bad as it could be? Absolutely not. But is there a lot of trouble right now? There absolutely is. And is it possible, if not likely, that it's going to get worse? I think that's entirely possible. But one heartening truth that you need to take from this, that I took from this this week that has encouraged me all week, is that no matter how deep the darkness, the light cannot be overcome. That's true in a global sense. That's true in a national sense. That's true in a personal sense. That no matter what kind of trouble or trial or tragedy we face, it is not stronger than the eternal word, which is Jesus. That darkness cannot outshine the light of Christ. And the next time you get discouraged this week, which will happen, friends, put that truth to good gospel use. Use it as a spiritual two-by-four to hold up your sagging proverbial ceiling. No matter how deep the darkness, the darkness has not overcome the light of Christ. Now also look at some of the, the, the difficulty, almost the tragedy here. Look at verses 9 and 10. This light, the true light's coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So think about that. Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to, to struggle, to work a job, to have multiple priorities that you got to keep straight, all these different things. He knows what that's like. In fact, he created the world, and yet the terrible irony here is that world that he created did not know him. And then to make it twist the knife even a little bit more, he came to his own, talking about the Jewish people here. He came out from among them, and his own people did not receive him. And friends, again, I think that is such a sad but heartening truth for us. Because some of you know what it's like to be rejected by your own family for the sake of Jesus. Friends, you're in good company. Because Jesus came to his own and they did not receive him. Some of you know what it's like to wonder, does anybody understand this particular struggle that I'm going through. Friends, Jesus does. He knows what it's like to be out in the world. But even in the midst of all of this willful ignorance that the Bible is describing here, look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. Friends, that is a profound truth. 
Because in the midst of all of this bad news and, and, and they won't listen to him and they, he comes to his own and they don't receive him, there is a group of people who do. Who did receive him? Those who believe in his name. And maybe you're here tonight and you're one of those people that I referred to at the beginning. You're, you got questions about Jesus. You hear this. The Spirit has begun to work in your heart and you say, I need to learn more about this Christ, but will he take me based on who I am and who I've been and what I've done? Friends, if you will receive Christ, he will receive you. That's what the verse is saying. All who did receive him, the requirement for you is to believe in his name. And not just a mental assent that Jesus was a real guy, but to truly believe to trust, to turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus, to transfer the leadership of your life over to him. And if you do that, he will take you. And for every single person in this room that has ever met Jesus, that's how we all got in. We came to the point where we realized we can't make ourselves right before God on our own. We can't. And Jesus is our own. And friend, if that stirs something in your heart tonight in a new and fresh way, in just a bit when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you take Christ. Because he will receive you. And you just need to believe in his name and be changed. And what happens when you do? Look back at the second half of verse 12 there. It says we are given the right to become children of God. Now, I'm an American, just like everybody else in this room. We are obsessed with our rights, with personal liberty. I understand that. I'm certainly thankful to live here. But let me tell you something that goes deeper than your rights as an American. Your rights as a Christian. And what he is saying here is that God has opened a path that you couldn't open on your own, and you now have a birthright you have a privilege. You are a son or daughter of the king of heaven because you're believing in his name. And the way you got in on that, verse 13, you were not born into it by blood or by your own effort, will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You didn't finesse this into reality, but God has done it. And if God has done it, no man or woman can undo it. So we need to stand upon the truth of eternal security in this verse. We need to know that if God has saved us, then no one will pluck us out of his hand. And friends, this is another one of those truths, two by four as it were, to hold up our sagging ceiling this week. Because one of the challenges of living in this area that we live in is that we are offered so many different ways to define ourselves that are not ultimate in nature. And here's what I mean by this. All of the marketing that is offered in so many different sets of industry is basically to say to somebody, you deserve it, now get this. This is who you are. This is your aspirational passion. Now buy this. Or you have worked in this way, now have this. Wrap yourself in luxury. 
And the further we go down that path, the easier it becomes to forget our fundamental identity. It's not where we live. It's not what we drive. It's not how much we own. It's not what's in our bank account. It's who we are in Christ. And we have been given the right to become children of God by God, and God has secured it for us. So when your ceiling sags this week under the weight of all that the world has to offer, remind yourself again of the truest thing about you and who it is that you are in Christ. Now, one more set of truths here that I want to dig into. Third point comes from verses 14 to 18. And we're just going to call this the grace of Jesus. Verse 14. And the word, so that same idea, the same concept he's been working through this whole prologue, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word dwelt is fascinating. It literally means to pitch a tent, to build a tabernacle, that Jesus pitched his tent among us. It calls to mind the Old Testament tabernacle where God met with Israel and then the temple was constructed. It was called the tabernacle of meeting there for a while, the tabernacle of witness. It's where God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, Exodus 33. But in the New Testament, God chose to reveal himself and interact with us in a far more personal way. And so instead of having a tent, he pitched his own tent. He added humanity to his divinity, and he was out among us. So we kind of touched on this idea, idea a little bit before, that he was in the world, even though he created the world. But now we see it become very concrete. And friends, I wonder, where do you most need that truth tonight? To know that Jesus knows your struggle as a single. Jesus knows your struggle of what it's like to have unruly children sometimes. Jesus knows what it's like to have complex relationships with family members. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood, to be maligned, to have people say things about him that was not true. And I don't think any of us in this room have gone to the point where people have chased us down and tried to kill us. So Jesus knows a lot of things that we don't even know in our struggle and suffering. And he knows all those things because in his grace, he pitched his tent among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what happened? We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Let's look on at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was because, th this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So in most of your Bibles, it's probably a little parenthetical statement there. And he, he's pointing back 
to what the, the John the Baptizer, John the Baptist did in preparation of Jesus. And then he gets right back into this idea that he laid out here at the end of 14, full of grace and truth, and he puts another Lego block on top of it. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So let's work backwards on this. What he's talking about here is that, that, that God is indeed a spirit. And Jesus came, and as I said before, he adds humanity to his divinity. And now we can see him. If we lived at this time, we could have seen Jesus walk about, heal people in real time and space. And you may recall, uh, we worked through 1 John at one point here in our journey together as a church. At the beginning of that book, John goes at great length to talk about that we see him, or we saw him, and we touched him, and we held him, and so on and so forth. The, the realness of Jesus in the world. He made God seeable to us. And why would he do all this? Well, verses 16 and verse 14 and the thread that runs throughout all this passage tells us it's because of his grace upon grace. The Greek word here is very interesting. It actually says grace instead of grace. And what does he mean by that? How do you get grace instead of grace? This is the idea. That as you receive the grace of God, more grace continues to come. I remember this one time, I went to some candy shop as a kid. This was like some Willy Wonka kind of thing. And there was like this thing where you could fill up your own bag or something of like pixie sticks. But they were like, it was diabetes in a bag. I mean, they were like this big and you could just like, it's just endless. And once you turned it on, it just ran and ran and ran. And you're like, there was so much sugar and candy in there. We could stand there forever as children and just watch. It just kept coming and it was endless. God's grace is like that, except infinite. That once the spigot is turned on, if you have received him, he's never going to run out on you. You're not going to out sin his ability to forgive. Now, do we abuse that? Do we use grace as a credit card? Of course not. Paul talks about that in Romans. But he also talks about in Romans that where sin has increased, grace has increased all the more. And we need to know that grace upon grace upon grace is coming our way if we will just receive it. I love the way Martin Luther talks about it. He said, The sun is not dimmed and darkened by shining on so many people or providing the entire world with its light or splendor. It retains its light intact. It loses nothing. It is immeasurable, perhaps able to illumine ten more worlds. I suppose that a hundred thousand candles can be ignited from one light, and still this light will not lose any of its brilliance. Thus Christ, our Lord, to whom we must flee and of whom we must all ask and is an indeterminate well, the chief source of grace, 
even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform all people into angels, still it would never lose as much as a a drop. The fountain constantly overflows with sheer grace. Friends, who in this room does not need that good news tonight? There is none among us that was faultless this week. Friends, there's grace for your trouble. The trouble you're going to find yourself in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, there's grace for you. When you fall, don't run from him, run to him. Don't be like Adam and try to go hide. Run to Christ and find that he has run to you. Grace upon grace upon grace. From this eternal creator, tent, pitcher, yet sovereign ruler, that dwelt among us and dwells among us by his spirit even now in this moment. Let me close tonight with this uh, anecdote I found from C.S. Lewis. Comes from Louis, uh, uh, Louis, Lucy's experience with Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you will be immediately familiar with this passage. But she comes up and she gazes into his large, wise face. And, she's, and he says, welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is just because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Friends, this is the passage where we get to look to the true Aslan and find him bigger. All those things that we learned about him, they were true before we came in here tonight. They'll be true 10,000 years after we're gone. But we got to see him again tonight. We got hit pause and marvel and wonder tonight. And so my encouragement is, both in this message and in this book, that Jesus would just get bigger and bigger and bigger for us every time that we meet him. So why don't we close in prayer and ask him that that would happen right now. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful to gather together tonight to wrestle with these big thoughts and big ideas. But Lord, we can't figure them out on your own. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work to write these truths on our hearts and expand not who you are, you are who you are, but our perspective of who you are. That we would be like little Lucy that it wouldn't take us a year though. It would just take us a moment. And you'd get bigger. We'd have a greater appreciation for who you are and what you've done and what you're doing. 
and that you would shape and change and encourage and help us because we need it. And we pray that you wouldn't just help us tonight, but you'd help us every week. Every week when we open the word, that you'd give us insight and help. And we know that you will. And we ask that you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name.